We thank God for summer. It's very, very hot, as you can see or you can feel, however, or uh, whichever way you might be experiencing it. Amen. Very, very hot. It's good. Amen. I'll implore all of you to try and make it to church one of these hot summer Sundays. Don't stay home. Come out. Let's fellowship. Amen. Thank God for virtual meetings, but I believe it's always better to congregate as an assembly physically uh, than just using the medium of technology. But, however, it's good to see all of you. I thank God for all your lives, and I believe that today God is going to minister to us because he has a word for us. But without much I do, let's start off with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning as... We come before your holy word. We pray that your word will minister to us in simplicity and in clarity of speech. I thank you, O Lord, for what you will do today in this house and the, the hearts that you will touch and convict through this message in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please turn your Bibles with me to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1. And we are considering the first eight verses. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 to 8. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 to 8. I believe by now we should all locate the book of Daniel. I'm reading. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shina to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Aspinas, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies, and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah Abednego. Verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Amen. Based on our scripture reading this morning, I'm speaking on what I've entitled, Don't Bow. Don't bow. Amen. Now, the book of Daniel teaches us four important lessons. I don't know if you've taken your time to 
uh, read the book of Daniel. It's a very powerful book. And I believe that Daniel will even make meaning, uh, especially in our landscape. We find ourselves in our current landscape. Uh, the first lesson you will learn from the book of Daniel is God is sovereign and he rules over all history. Kingdoms rise and fall according to his plan. I think one of the topics that is not well taught, in my opinion, is the sovereignty of God. And if I will be very honest, among our charismatic and Pentecostal circles, we don't really um, um, teach the sovereignty of God very well. It's not very didactic, and that is a big problem. Amen. I, I believe some of the other uh, branches of Christianity, like Reformed Christianity, teach the sovereignty of God almost accurately, but when you look at our charismatic Pentecostal circles, and there are reasons why it's so, and I wouldn't want to get into that, but I believe one of the topics we need to scripturally understand and gain perspective of is the sovereignty of God. Number two, God honors you when you take a stand for what is right. When you read the book of Daniel, that is a theme that when you take the right stand, it might be difficult, you might be challenged, you might have enemies, your, your life could even be at risk. God is going to honor you one way or another when you take a stand for what is right. But it's not an easy path. You see, we are not just called to do good things. Sometimes good things can be popular. We are also called to do the right things. And sometimes you might do the right thing and 100 people in a room will all be against you. You will not even have one supporter. But if you will confidently and, you, you, and without compromise take a stand that you believe is in line with what God has told you, is in line with your convictions, God will honor you. The third thing that you see is that God punishes sin. And that is something that is noteworthy. We have to understand that about God. God is holy. God cannot stand sin. Yes, he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and atone, to come and sacrifice for the sins of this world. However, sin will never go unpunished in the sight of God. The fourth thing that you learn when you read the book of Daniel is that God already has a plan for the future because he is sovereign and it will come to pass. There is nothing that surprises God. And you will never understand this fourth point very well till you've read the book of Daniel. Whatever God says, it happens. He has a plan for the future. So God doesn't do things by accident or incident. God does things according to his predetermined counsel. It's well planned, well thought out, well ahead. Therefore, be encouraged that God has your interest and your welfare at heart. He knows your future. You might not know your future, but he knows your future. And I'm hereby encouraging you that it's not incidental, it's not accidental. It's pre-programmed, it's pre-planned. Everything that you are going through, every phase that you are going through, it is part of the agenda of God for your life. And if you only stick to the counsel of God, and if you will follow his blueprints, I believe that his future that you, he has for you will begin to unfold. And one thing I know about God is that when he has a future for a child of God, it is plans of peace, plans of the future, and plans of hope, but not to 
harm us or bring us evil. He will definitely bring us to an expected end if we will trust him. Amen. Now, chapter one of our story we just read, especially looking at the first eight verses, it talks to us about the background of these four men who came into captivity. And it was no fault of theirs. They came into captivity because Nebuchadnezzar had besieged Jerusalem and its king. And the king at that time was Joachim. And if you read Chronicles, especially Second Chronicles, you will see the acts of Joachim that led to why Nebuchadnezzar had to take them into captivity. And this was this uh, um, um, Israel being captured and made as part of the sovereign territory of Babylon began the ascent of Nebuchadnezzar. Theologians say that he was probably 17 years old, very young. And, and at that time of, of writing this book, Nebuchadnezzar had now grown to become the most feared, most tyrannical, and, and, and he had become the most powerful leader of all time. And that's why he was so insolent, and that's why he was so stubborn, and that's why he didn't fear anybody. He was like the superpower of the world. Babylon at this time was the superpower. They had the fortress, they had the economic prowess, they had it all, and they had no match. And on top of this country is one who doesn't fear God, very obstinate and a very narcissistic personality. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. He took the children of God and put them into captivity. And the reason why they went into captivity, it wasn't because it was the plan of God. It was because of the king, Joachim, who was leading, that led the children of God to sin. And, and one of the things that happened to them was that they were led in captivity. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 28, there it outlines to us the blessings of the law and the curse of the law. And if you read the curse of the law, that's from verse 15 to verse 68, one of the prominent mentions of the curse of the law is that another nation will subdue you and you will serve them and you shall be their slaves. It's very prominent throughout from verse 15 to verse 68. So Israel now at this point were experiencing the curse of the law because they were worshipping other gods. Now, Nebuchadnezzar at that time, he was the king. And I want us to really learn something from this story about Nebuchadnezzar calling the children of Israel which is Daniel and his three friends, Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah. And out of this story, we will be able to gain concepts of some things. Amen. The first thing that I want you to know is that in verse 4, the Bible lets us know that Nebuchadnezzar told Ashpenaz, who was the master of his eunuchs, you know, those days when they take people into captivity, one of the things that they would do to make them feel very suppressed was to make them eunuchs. And that was to take away their manhood. And when you do that, you take away the confidence of a man, and then he begins to live a subservient life towards you. That was the, 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 the thing of many captors. When anybody takes you into captivity, that was one of the things they would do. They will render you impotent. They will render you barren. And then it affects your confidence, especially during that climate of Israel. If you are never able to produce a seed 
as a man or as a woman, you were not able to take seed. It, it, it had a certain stigma attached to it. Thank God that now, because of civilization, uh, that is not really the case anymore. But during the time of Israel, when one was barren, it was seen as a curse. It was seen as you might have been disobedient to God or you may have incurred God's wrath. And that is why you can't give birth. Because the Israelites believe that if God is happy with you and if God has blessed you, one of the things you should be able to do effortlessly is to give birth. So these people, their confidence was taken because now the power for them to give seed to a woman or for them to even start a family had been taken away from them. And Nebuchadnezzar was going to do something dreadful. But here the description. He says, I want young men who are good looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, quick to understand, who have the ability to serve in the king's palace. Let me tell you something. Nebuchadnezzar in this story represents a type of the devil, a type of the world. The world wants the best. And God also wants the best. And that is why, as a church, we have to be mindful of our youth. We have to create programs for our youth. We have to invest heavily in our youth. Because if we don't, the world and the systems of the devil will make place for them. He doesn't want any old person. Young people who we can mold their minds, who we can shape their minds. You see, Nebuchadnezzar here in this story is thinking transgenerational. Unfortunately, the church, sometimes we just think only one generation. We don't think about the next generation. That's why sometimes when the, 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 this, a generation passes, it affects the the, the system of the church. And one of the ways we will be able to become transgenerational as the kingdom of God is not just to focus on adults, but to focus on the young people who are primed for the move of God. Otherwise, if we don't do that, the devil is going to come after them and he is going to imbibe into them their systems. And then they will become instruments of the devil. So if we are hearing this message, invest in the young person, not just in the adult, invest in the young person, invest in the children, invest in the, in the youth, invest in people who are under 30 because they can also do something for God. Don't leave them to, to, to chance. Don't leave them to the whims and the caprices of the enemy. Don't leave them to the world. Because if you leave them, by the time you may have wanted to now begin your process of redemption, it might be too late. So that's one thing that we can learn from the story. He says, I want young men. I want people who are quick to understand. I want people who are gifted. The world needs gifted people. God also needs gifted people. So we should not throw away people who are gifted. We should not throw away people who have wisdom and who have expertise upon certain things. We should take all these people and use them in the kingdom of God so that they can be a blessing and they can be arrows that will be thrust forth into the kingdom of darkness and then they will have influence upon the world. But my main thing is to look at three things that Nebuchadnezzar did. And that's where I get the theme for this message, don't bow. The first thing that you will see 
is that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to change their culture. Now, what is culture? Culture is defined as a way of life. Culture informs how you behave. It informs how you speak. It informs what you eat. It informs your manner of life. It informs how you dress everything. Culture is a way of life. That's how I describe it. In this world, we are able to identify certain people by their culture. We are able to know this is an American. This is an Englishman. This is from West Africa. This person is from East Africa. This is from South America. Why? Because of culture. Culture is powerful. Accent even gives uh, way to who you are. What culture are you from? And Nebuchadnezzar wanted to change their culture. Why do I say that? If you read the scripture, the Bible lets us know that he wanted to change their culture so that they would learn the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Hebrews, these people were children of God. When you read Exodus chapter 19, the Bible lets us know that these people, God says, you are my own special people. You are a kingdom of priests. You are holy. I have chosen you. These were Hebrews. These were people that God had a covenant with. These were people that God had given them their literature, which was the Bible, the law. He had given them the law. He had given them the Psalms. He had given them the prophets. They had their own literature out of which will inform their language and out of which will inform their culture. But now when Nebuchadnezzar put these people into captivity, one of the things that he wanted to do was he was going to change their language, he was going to change their literature, and in effect, it will affect their culture, their way of life. This morning, if you are listening to me, the devil is trying to attack culture. It is so sad that today you see people who say that I'm a Christian, but they think like the world, behave like the world, act like the world. There is nothing that they do that even shows that they are Christians. They don't have even an iota of scripture backing their conviction, backing their action, backing their motive, backing even how they behave. Culture, your culture is under attack. And it's a strategy of Nebuchadnezzar. For Nebuchadnezzar to make these people turn from becoming Hebrew boys to becoming Babylonians, he had to touch their literature. What do you read? And the literature there also talks about their information base. Who is informing you? Is the Bible informing you? Do you have a word view? W-O-R-D. Or you have a world view? What is informing you? On what basis do you take certain decisions? Do you take decisions according to the Bible? Today there are some people who are just church, but they are not kingdom. It is one thing to say, I belong to International Charismatic Church. I know the presiding bishop. I know when the church was founded. And that's good. It's, it's a blessing to know that. Uh, I know Pastor Steve, one of the pastors. But apart from that, do you know God? The Bible says that they that know their God, they shall be strong and they shall do exploits. Culture is under attack. And I pray in the name of Jesus that may we not give in to the attack of culture. Culture is attack. 
It shows when certain decisions are taken. Christians are not uniform when it comes to certain decisions. Because even though you might be in the church, you might have a different culture. Nebuchadnezzar said, for me to use these Hebrew boys to effectively serve in the Babylonian kingdom, I am going to change their literature and change their language. What language do you speak? The language you speak is indicative of how much of the word of God is in your heart. The language that you speak is indicative of your information base. Where do you get your source of information? Do you get your source of information from the news network? Do you get your source of information from your fellowship and your, your quiet times with God through meditation of the Bible, through reading the Bible, through worship? Where do you get your language? Because language is not just given. Language is learned. It's for, it forms your culture. And I pray that in the name of Jesus, may we not lose in this war of culture. May we not bow to the culture of the world. May we not bow to Nebuchadnezzar. May we not bow to Babylon. The Hebrew meaning of Babylon is mixture by confusion. May we not be confused. You see, even when you look uh, in the, in the, in the uh, preceding verses, you will see a typical example of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar took the articles of God, what belongs to God in the temple of God, and he put them in his temple, which was a, de a demon worship, a, a pagan worship. It's a mixture right there. That's the nature of Babylon. They mix things, which brings confusion. Ladies and gentlemen, may we win the war against culture. I pray that today, may you think like a child of God. May you walk like a child of God. May you behave like a child of God. May you speak like a child of God. May everything show, may everything be indicative of your life that you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You are not just here to attend church. You are here to make a difference, but you can't make a difference if you are reading literature aside God's word. Culture. Remember that. Language, literature affects your culture. It affects your way of life. And therefore, if we have the right information base, it will affect our language. It will affect how we behave. It will affect our way of life. And that is how we will be able to live a life of influence whereby we will live by the master's words that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. The second thing, Nebuchadnezzar touched their identity. Don't bow to identity. Do you know that these people, they were sons of parents? They had a father and they had a mother. Their father and mother were Hebrew. They gave them names. They christened them. Daniel's parents called them Daniel. Azaria's parents called them Azaria. Mishael's parents called them Mishael, and Hananiah's parents called them Hananiah. They had their own names. And you have to understand that identity is the distinguishing character of an individual. A name informs identity. And that was so true in the life of the Hebrews. 
In the Hebrew culture, a name is equivalent to a person. And it spoke of certain things. It spoke of a person. It spoke of his wealth. It spoke of his character. So whenever you give a name in the Hebrew culture, you are also informing the character of the person. Once upon a time, there was a man in the Bible called Nabal. And Nabal was married to a lady called Abigail, who later became David's wife. And the Bible said something very interesting. The Bible said, as his name is, so is he. You see, his parents called him a fool. That's the meaning of the word Nabal. Nabal means fool. And Nabal acted foolishly, and he was a fool. He didn't just act foolishly. You see, you can act foolishly, but you might not be a fool. Nabal was a fool, and he acted foolishly. Do you know why? It was the power of the name that rested upon him. His name was called Nabal. And that phrase in the scripture, as his name is, so is he. So it wasn't surprised that Nabal was a fool, one, and number two, he acted foolishly, which led to his death. And then David married his wife. <laughs> Amen. So a name speaks of character. It speaks of authority. And it speaks of many other things that I don't want to get into. But one of the scheming ways that you can see of the devil or the enemy is that he will try and inform us of our identity by giving us his opinion, his labeling, and his name. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to erase every trace of Hebrew roots from these four young men. It wasn't just enough for them to feed on the literature and learn the language of the Chaldeans. And the Chaldeans were enemies of God. Now he wanted to change their name. And look at the name he gave to them. Daniel means God is my judge. That's the meaning of the word Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar gave him the name Belshazzar. And Belshazzar means my God should protect his life. He changed his name. And when Nebuchadnezzar is talking about my God, he wasn't talking about Israel's God. He was talking about his God that he worshipped. And one of the gods was called Shina. My God will protect your life. You see, he's changed their name. He's changing their identity. Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious or a product of grace. So Hananiah, when when the parents gave him the name, they are expecting him to experience the grace of God upon his life. It was changed to Shadrach. And Shadrach means servant of sin. You see what Nebuchadnezzar is doing? He's just giving them different labels to inform them of their identity rather than the identity of the father, which is God. The third name, Mishael. It means, who is equal to God? It's a question. Now, Nebuchadnezzar changed his name to Meshach, which means shadow of the prince. And when Nebuchadnezzar is talking about shadow, he's not talking about godly shadow. He's talking about demonic shadows of a prince. Yes, who is equal to God? But from now on, I christen you that you have shadows of Babylon that will follow you. And that's not a good shadow. Some shadows are not good. Some shadows are good. David said it. Yet though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Some shadows are not good. 
Balsam shadows are good, like Paul's shadow. The Bible said that Paul's shadow, it healed the sick. Some shadows are good. Change this thing. And then Azaria. Azaria means Yahweh has helped. His name was changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. And Nebo was one of the smaller Babylon gods. So he looked at Azaria and said, you are now a servant of one of my gods. He changed their name. Change the identity. And listen, don't believe the identity of the devil. That's why it's important to take the Bible. Today I brought my Bible. Let me use it for analogy. That's why it's important to take the Bible. You see, it's important to have the Bible. Because this Bible informs you of your identity. This Bible informs you of who you truly are. You are not just a sinner. You are the righteousness of God. You are the apple of God's eye. You have not just been forsaken. Don't feel suicidal. God has chosen you. God loves you. This Bible informs you of your identity. But Nebuchadnezzar, he threw away this. That's why for him to have control, he said, let's take away their literature. These people have been given the Ten Commandments. These people have been given the book of the law. Let's throw away that. Joshua once said something. He, he, he said what God told him. He said, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. But you should meditate upon it day and night. That you will observe to do wearing what is according unto it. And you shall have good success. Not just that. But you shall also prosper. He took away that. The source of their prosperity. The source of their success. And he said, you are going to learn pagan religion. By reading pagan books, which will inform your language and which will affect your culture. And when the devil is able to do that, it's now easy for him to now put any form of labeling upon you. You are not the sick, you are healed. Some of you say you are sick because you don't know your identity. Reject that. You are not depressed, you are free. You have been liberated according to what is written in the Bible. Dare to know your identity. And you will not know your identity by looking at the horoscope. You will not know your identity by playing those games on Facebook. Who am I? Touch this apple. Touch this that. Touch this. Then it will say you are something. You will not know that by playing that on Facebook. You will not know that by looking at the horoscope. You only know who you are. By reading the Bible. That's the only way. Because it's in the Bible that you know your true identity. Who you really are. Nobody else can inform you of that. Your parents giving you your name is secondary to the nature of God. Which you'll find in the Bible. May we not bow to the identity of the world. And the third thing, the third and final thing is in verse 8. And let me read it. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he will not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. The third thing is don't bow to the pressure of defilement. Holiness. Daniel's holiness was under attack here, but Daniel refused to bow. 
in the Old Testament, one of the ways by which you, you could be holy or unholy was through foods. If you do understand the new covenant, that doesn't really apply. The Bible calls it a shadow. So now, it's not what we eat that makes us clean or unclean. But Jesus said it when he walked on this earth. What rather comes out of us? So be careful. Don't allow the forces of this world to contaminate your holiness and your stand for God. That was under attack. It was pressure. Daniel was in a foreign land. Daniel was under a very intimidating personality, a very wicked person. But he didn't bow. He decided to be holy. He didn't defy himself. He didn't defy himself. Careful. The forces of this world are at bay. Everything wants you to fall. The movies, the songs. Do not love the things of this world because the Bible said that if you love the things of this world, the love of the Father is not in you. Don't love this world. Because when you love this world, it puts so much pressure and it taints your holiness. The Bible said that, be ye holy, for God is holy. Holiness. And when I'm talking about holiness, I'm not talking about long dresses and no makeup. That's not what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about holiness, I'm talking about receiving the gift of holiness. First and foremost, holiness, you don't work for holiness. It's a gift. And then you walk in the knowledge of that gift. That gift informs you how to walk. That's what I'm talking about. And of course, it does affect your standards and everything. But if we are just going to merely reduce that to superstitious matters like that or superficial things, that's not really holiness. That's not the point. Holiness is having one mind with God. What God says or what God thinks that is what you acquiesce to. That's what holiness is. You are holy. So when God says forgive and you forgive, you are holy. When God says that flee fornication for anybody who sins has sinned against his body, you do exactly that. That's holiness. Holiness is having one mind with God. What God says, that's what I say. God's yes is my yes. God's no is my no. Therefore, when somebody offends me, God's yes is forgive. I forgive. That is holiness. We are under so much pressure to conform and not to be transformed. Today, don't bow to the pressure of being like the world. Don't defile yourself. Christ has paid this expensive price by laying down his body and shedding his blood so that you can truly conform to the image of his son and not conform to the world. I present to you three things. Don't bow. Don't bow to worldly culture. Don't bow to worldly identity. Don't bow to worldliness. And when you are able to take a stand for God, like I said, one of the four lessons of the book of Daniel, God will honor you because you took a stand that was right for him. Look at verse 9. Very interesting of Daniel chapter 1. 
Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. When you take a stand for what is right, God will honor you. You will be favored. You will have goodwill. It might be tough. You might have enemies at first. People will want to ridicule you. People might put you on social media. Now, these days, when you do something, they'll just put you on social media. People might put you on social media, crucify you, blast you. But if you become unbending, unyielding, uncompromising, and you say that I am not going to bow, even though it might cost me friendships, it might cost me tears, it might cost me money, listen, God will honor you. God will favor you. And God will bring goodwill to you. One of my favorite scriptures, I think recently Mr. Hayford and I were talking about, the Bible says that when, when a man's ways pleases the Lord, he causes his enemies to be at peace with him. Try living that scripture. You will see that that scripture is true. When a man's ways pleases the Lord, he even causes his enemies to be at peace with him. Goodwill. A Hebrew is not supposed to have goodwill with a Babylonian. But he did. Because his ways pleased the Lord. And God caused his enemies to live at peace. He was favored. And if you should read the subsequent chapters of Daniel, you will see how favored he was. That's why for some of you who are missing Wednesday, I'm so sad. Because Pastor Frank is taking us through a very in-depth, thorough discussion on the book of Daniel and unveiling some rich truths to us on excellence. Amen. So I would like to end here. If there is any prayer I want you to pray today, Lord, I want to be uncompromising. I want to be unyielding. I want to be unbending. I don't easily bend. And we don't have any, any willpower. We easily bend. Our knees slightly buckle at the sound of the least pressure. Today you are praying, Lord, I want to be uncompromising. I want to be unyielding. I don't want to bow to culture. Today you cannot even tell the difference between a Christian and a worldly person. Because we've become so worldly because we have bowed down to culture. We've bowed down to culture. We've bowed down to culture. And may God cause us to repent that of a truth, there should be a standard that you can see that this is a Christian, this is a worldly person. May you not bow to worldly identity. Look, this world has nothing to offer identity-wise. If you want to know who you truly are, I invite you to pick up the Bible. And number three, don't bow to worldliness because it will defile and contaminate your holiness. So if there's any prayer I want you to pray today, Lord, I pray that I will be unyielding and bending and uncompromising. Let these three words ring in your spirit. Unyielding and bending and compromising. Today, if some of your friends may ask you, what did you learn at church? Just say, my pastor said three words. Unbending, unyielding, uncompromising. Begin to pray. Begin to pray. Thank you, Jesus. May I be unyielding. May I be uncompromising. May I be unbending. 
I refuse to bow. I refuse to bow to the pressure of culture, to the pressure of worldliness, to the pressure of false identity. I will not bow. May I be unyielding. May I be uncompromising. May I be unbending. That I may hold high the standard. That I may hold high the banner of God unashamedly, unreservedly, without any apology. Thank you, Lord. May I be unyielding, unbending, uncompromising. May I be tough in the face of sin. May I be tough in the face of temptation. May I be tough in the face of adversity. Because today we have decided that we will not bow. Thank you, O Lord, for a resolve by your spirits. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.